All right, everybody. As you are getting your coffee, which I do recommend, uh, you're going to listen to the sermon well. Coffee is a good idea. Uh, as you are getting your coffee, and uh, I am readjusting so that I'm not in the way of the screen, um, turn to John chapter 1, and then if you want to put a finger over in Second John, not John chapter 2, but Second John, we're going to be there as well. Uh, some of you may well know that uh, every two years, Legionnaire Ministries does a, a survey uh, to kind of gauge the theology of evangelicals. Uh, it's called the State of Theology Survey. You can access it at uh, stateoftheology.com. I do recommend it. But one of the things that it does is it asks the same questions every two years to kind of see where everybody stands. And I will tell you that we have seen a steady decline in evangelicals, not just Christians who are people who claim to be Christians, not just in the culture at large, but in people who claim to be evangelicals who are decidedly rejecting key doctrines of Christ. And we have seen a particularly precipitous drop from 2020 to 2022 of Evangelicals. Now hear me, this is not just people who claim to be Christians, this is not just general population, this is people who claim to be evangelicals, denying the deity of Christ. So we're seeing 43% of people who claim to be evangelicals deny that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And I have to tell you, like this is a really big problem. Uh, generally, we would say there are some key doctrines of Christianity that have been affirmed from the very beginning that if you deny one of these, you are no longer a Christian. As we actually see in 2 John, you can't remain a believer and deny the deity of Christ. And so what I wanted to do today, I'm recognizing that we are a church that believes in the biblically orthodox principles of the faith. Um, and yet I would imagine if most of you had a Jehovah's Witness come to your door, who was trying to say that Jesus was something other than God, would you be able to defend our biblical position? And so part of my goal here today is, one, to equip you to doctrinally defend, like, hey, Jesus really is God, and two, to make you passionate about that doctrine. So uh, turn to John chapter 1. I would like to have someone read verses 1 through 7 for me. Could I get someone to read John chapter 1, verses 1 through 7? Kevin's got it. All right, good. And then Brian, since you had your hand up also, I'm going to give you 9 through 18 uh, very, very soon here. Um, quick side note, as we're setting this up, you're going to notice something as Kevin's getting ready to read. You're going to notice something about John chapter 1. First of all, it is written by John the Apostle. And as we understand, it is probably, although we can't say for sure, probably the last of the four Gospels to be written. We're not certain about that. Probably the last to be written, though. And John is decidedly writing this gospel for the whole world. Now we can say, yes, all of the gospels are written for the whole world, indeed. But Matthew has the Jews in mind. And Luke has the Greeks in mind. Um, here we have this book that John is thinking through. He's like, this is people who are not even from this region. They're going to read this, and I want them to know exactly who Jesus is. And so with that in mind, that's how the chapter begins. So... Kevin, can you read just verses 1 through 7 for us, brother?
him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not understood. There came a man who was sent from God, the name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that life, so that through him all men might believe. Amen. Thank you, brother. So can you maybe notice something about these first three words in chapter one? Does it seem familiar? What does it sound like? Sounds like Genesis one. That is not by accident. A little side note, you all just did some good literary analysis. Sometimes there is phrasing that is intentionally a throwback. So here, when John writes this gospel to the whole world, he has Genesis 1-1 in full view. And just like it says then, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, here it says, in the beginning was the word. First thing, before we go any further, what does this tell us about the word? If he existed in the beginning before creation. He's eternal. This means that he is not a created being. We have two categories in scripture. Uh, we have created beings and we have God. There's no in-between. There's no other third category. There's one of the two. We Nowhere in Scripture do we have anything or being that is something other than either created or God. Simple as that. So it begins with, in the beginning was the Word. That should tell us right away that this Word is himself God. And he makes it explicit in the next phrase. He says, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Is that strange language to say was God and is God? It would be very strange for me to say, um, I don't know, Mr. Sam's was Dan and was with Dan. That, that doesn't make sense, right? Unless we're referring to something a little bit more complicated than mere personhood. We are talking about the fact that this word is with God. That means distinct from the Father and is himself God. We're going to talk about the language here later on, but this is baking in our doctrine of the Trinity, in which we, dis we, we very clearly say that Jesus, the Son, is the same essence as the Father, though distinct in personhood. More on that later, and I mean that this time. It says, he was in the beginning with God. Notice this in verse 3, all things were made through him. Who makes all things? Creator has to be God. Now, I know this is really basic, but can I just point out, we're three verses into John 1. This book that John recognizes might be the only written book that many people in the first and second century were going to get about Jesus at all. And in just a few verses, he has made it very clear that Jesus is the creator of the universe, that he is indeed God, which means he must be worshipped as such. So carrying on, um, we are going to acknowledge here later on that there's reference to him being the light of men and that the lightness or the, that this light was rejected. But he also says this, he was not the light, but there was this John who has come to bear witness about the light. Key stuff about John the Baptist that you probably already know. So Brian, can I get you to read verse 9 through 18, brother?
Amen. Thank you, brother. All right. So are there maybe some things in here that give us even more detail as to who this word is? Uh, some of you, as I'm teaching this, I'm thinking like, oh, I know you guys know a lot of this. But I want us to think just for a moment how key this is and how John wants to make it explicitly clear. He's even reiterating it again and again. He gives language of this being the light, the true light that has come to the world, that the world did not receive him, his own people rejected him. But then he gives this opportunity, he mentions that those who are born not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, they have the opportunity to be adopted into the family of God and receive him. Good news, that's talking about us. That's talking about the elect. Notice this in verse 14. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I don't know how much clearer that can get. The word here for flesh is sarks, and it might surprise you, but it just means flesh. Um, there's nothing complicated. There's nothing esoteric about it. This is the plain word, the plain language that God became man. There's no secret Greek word that gives the idea that he was some floating apparition that looked like God. There is no uh, strange you know, uh, phrasing here that means he's anything other than a person. This is making it so clear that Jesus, the Son of God, has become flesh in all the plain, real sense. He has muscles and bone and blood. He eats and weeps and laughs. He is truly God and truly man. So notice also, um, it says in verse 15 that John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. One more time, he's affirming that this Jesus existed before John even though, side note, John is just a tad older because this Jesus pre-existed eternally. Basic stuff. You all are with me. Um, last thing here, though, verse 18, it says, No one has ever seen God. The only God, you could even almost, this it would be inserting, but the idea here is, however, it says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. That's also weird language. It should remind us of John 1 here, this idea that there is one God, and that one God is with God, and he has made him known. That seems pretty important. Um, verse 14 even says, says, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Whose glory do we see? Do we talk very often? Now, we, we have a little reference to in... 1 Corinthians 14 of a woman's hair being her glory. Um, but the idea of glory as a divine glory, we don't see of anyone else other than God himself. And here we have John, the apostle, saying, we saw the glory of God on him. 
You might remember in our study of Acts that part of the key thing here is that if you were going to be an apostle, you had to be a witness of Christ because you needed to be able to say, he rose from the dead, we beheld his glory, he really is God, he really is truly human and truly God, he really did die for our sin, he really did raise from the dead, and if you don't have that, you don't have anything, and that was why it was so important for the apostles to be witnesses. Now, John, in just one chapter, has established all these key things about who Jesus is. In this book that is designed, this letter, this gospel that is designed to go to the whole of the world, he begins by clarifying this statement because it's so important. So let's maybe ask the question, why? So kids, if you are ready, I know we already did catechism, but can you all answer a couple of catechism questions for me? Ready? What sort of redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? And it was truly human and also truly God. Okay, that begs this next question. Why must the redeemer be truly human? That in human nature, he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for sin. So this redeemer had to be fully God and fully man. He had to be fully man so that he could live a perfectly righteous life and then suffer the penalty for sin, even though he didn't do the sinning. This is so he could give us his righteousness and he could pay for our unrighteousness. All right, last question. Why must the Redeemer be truly God? Kids, do you remember this one? Because of his divine nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective. This is why we teach catechism, by the way. Because right now, 43% of evangelicals could not answer those three questions. 43% of people who claim to be evangelicals are going around saying Jesus was a great teacher because they don't understand that if he's merely a great teacher, he is nothing. In fact, if you're familiar with C.S. Lewis's argument, he makes three comments. He says, he calls it the Lord, liar, lunatic argument. He says, Jesus can't just be a good teacher. Because a good teacher who is not God does not go about saying that he's God because that would make him a false teacher. I mean, it's pretty simple, right? Um, none of us go about saying, we were talking about Waco earlier today, none of us goes about saying that David Koresh is a good teacher, right? Because he's claiming to be a Messiah that he is not, right? Nobody goes around saying that Jim Jones is a good teacher, because he was claiming to be God in a weird kind of way, um, and yet led all, and said all kinds of nice things about let, let's care for each other and whatever, and then got everybody murdered. Because it is always Christ or chaos. Either you will have the God of Scripture and you will have truth and order and love and beauty, or you will reject the God of Scripture and it will lead to destruction. Every time, brothers and sisters. And so, key thing here, Jesus cannot be merely a good teacher. So what's the other opportunity? Well, he could be a liar, right? I mean, theoretically, you could have a guy who's a shyster who knows the game and he can say that he is God and he could just simply be lying. That's option number two. The third thing is that he could just be crazy. Like we recognize there are people that claim to be God that simply are crazy. They're neither a good teacher nor are they a liar. They might really think it. Three categories there. Lord or liar or lunatic. Well, as we see, the disciples see his glory. This same Jesus died and rose from the dead. The evidence is that he is not merely a good teacher. He is indeed Lord. But let me just tell you, you can't just make him a good teacher. 
Cool. You guys are with me, right? All right, so let's very briefly talk. I'm just going to address some scriptural things here. Because believe it or not, there's a group of people called Gnostics that were going around saying that Jesus was God, yes, but he wasn't man. And so they were going around saying, like, you know, he kind of floated around and looked like a man. He said some good things, but he never actually became flesh because in their view, that would have made him evil because flesh was by definition evil. All right. So a couple of things that I, you guys might not even feel like you need this. We're just going to make it really clear that Jesus was fully human at the same time. So first of all, this is critical because we see in Romans 5, 12 through 21, Jesus has to be the second Adam. Remember, he needs to, on our behalf, suffer the punishment for sin, though he has lived righteously. He needs to do what the first Adam couldn't do. And so just by necessity, he has to be man. That's what Romans 5 gets at. Uh, second, however, we see that Jesus is born of the Virgin Mary. He fulfills a normal human birth. Uh, there's no reference to like Jesus just kind of magically popping out of Mary's womb, kind of floating around, nothing like that. No, all the reference is that this is a very real, very fleshly birth. Uh, he comes about by miraculous means, but the birth is a regular birth, you guys. I mean, it's, it's a human birth. Um, his body and flesh... Uh, he has he has he has flesh and blood. Uh, let's see, let's uh, in Hebrews two, uh, as well as in First John chapter four. Um, pretty simple. He has flesh and blood. He can eat stuff. Uh, he does eat things. People can touch him. Simple as that. This sounds really basic because it is, but unfortunately we have to go over the basic stuff because people deny even the basic stuff. Uh, he experienced normal human development. Luke two fifty two talks about how he's growing in wisdom and stature and favor. He is fully human in that sense. He experiences emotion in John 11, uh, physical limitations. Uh, he gets tired. He wants to take a nap. Um, this is He's fully human. Um, let's see. Both before and after his resurrection, his human body was tangible. John 20, we see that even after he's resurrected, people can touch him and he eats fish. Um, his titles reveal... Uh, that he is human. Even this title, Son of Man, or the Man Jesus Christ, or Son of David. Uh, we also see from Matthew 26 and John 13 that he possesses a rational human soul and spirit. Interesting. Because it's not merely that Jesus' divinity comes in and replaces the soul of a man. He's a full person in all of that sense, and he is truly God at the same time. Cool? All right, so let's talk about some implications here. First implication is the virgin birth itself. As you all who were in our Bible study that we did last year, we talked about this seed of woman passage. Anybody know where this phrase, seed of woman, first shows up in Scripture? Genesis 3, we call it the Proto-Evangelion. And it is when God is proclaiming a curse on the serpent and he says, the seed of woman is going to come, he is going to crush your head, you will bruise his heel. In case you don't know, Head wound is a lot worse than an ankle wound. Um, and the idea is that this is, the seed of woman is going to come and crush sin and death. This is why genealogies matter so much in scripture. We're tracing from Eve to Mary so that we see that Jesus is fulfilling that prophecy to crush sin and death. This is why it needs to be a virgin birth because it couldn't be Adam's seed. It had to be divine, Holy Spirit conception. 
Anyway, a little side note, as we see in Isaiah and other passages, Jesus fulfills this prophecy, the seed of woman prophecy, and the prophecy that he would be born of a virgin. And here he is fulfilling that in the Gospels. Side note, guys, I really believe that happened. This is not some cool, artistic, figurative thing, although it does happen to be artistic and beautiful because it's God's plan. But I really believe Mary was a virgin. I really believe that the Holy Spirit caused her to be with child. And if we don't have that, it all falls apart. Another implication of the fact that Jesus is fully human is that we have a sympathetic high priest. We see here in Hebrews 4, 15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Uh, This is another key thing we see, that Jesus, as he is living his life, is genuinely being tempted. And as he is tempted, he resists in ways that Adam didn't resist, in ways that Israel doesn't doesn't resist. We see him as the perfect Adam and the perfect Israel. And we see now also he is this wonderfully sympathetic high priest. When we are tempted to sin, he doesn't sit up there on the throne saying like, hmm, yeah, what's wrong with you? Um, He's like, I I know what it is to be tempted, yet I made it through and I put my Holy Spirit in you so that you can resist temptation as well. Anyway, all that is preface. Let us go to this next listing here. So I'm just going to cite a few things because every now and then, have you guys ever had the Jehovah's Witnesses show up at your door? Okay. Um, I know how to run them off quickly. Um, I don't mean to run them. I would love to talk to them more, but usually this is, have you noticed that they try to talk to you about like, here's the weird things going on in the world, and don't you want some comfort? And, and they'll talk about this and that, and things that generally you can kind of like, well, I kind of agree, and yeah, we're kind of, and if you're not careful, they will waste hours and hours and hours of your time. More on that later. I mean it. Second John addresses that very thing. And so I like to do this thing when the Jehovah's Witnesses come around, and I say, oh, Tell me what you think of Jesus. Little side note, every cult, every false religion will always have, generally always, have something that they have to say about Jesus. And so I like to go straight for the jugular and say, tell me what you think of Jesus. Is he fully God and fully man? Cuts right to the chase, saves you a lot of time, and guess what? They have to respond to that. And so normally there's two of them, because you ever notice there's almost always two of them. One is normally the, quote, expert in the cult, and one is a little bit newer. I always like to start talking and very quickly realize who it is that is the protege, and then I start making direct eye contact with them because they're the one that you're going to have the best chance of of reaching. And so then I do this. I start addressing these very things that I have listed here. We emailed these out. You're welcome to use these, or you can screenshot it or what? Not screenshot it. You can take a picture. I'll give you the notes. All right. First of all, we see that Jesus is called God and noted as having an eternal throne. That's Hebrews 1. Hebrews 1.8. Also, he is called God and Savior in Titus 2.13, Romans 9.5, 1 John 5.20, John 1.1, 1, 1, 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. It's really clear. We have a lot of the disciples saying, he is God. Done. Simple. Cool. All right. Moving on. It says, Jesus allows Thomas to call him God. John 20.28. 20, you guys know that Thomas gets a bad rap a lot, right? Everybody remembers doubting Thomas. But what happens when Jesus shows up to Thomas? He offers Thomas all of the evidence Thomas said he would need. 
It's like, Thomas, you can put your hand in my side, touch my hands, no problem. Like, I'm, I'm going to show you that I'm legit. Thomas ends up not having to. As soon as he sees him, what does he do? He says, my Lord and my God. Does Jesus say, oh, no, 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 you've misunderstood. I'm just a regular guy resurrected. No. He's like, that's right. I mean, he's, he allows Thomas to worship him as God. Uh, so he's called God and Savior. He's worshipped. Um, in Colossians 2, we see that all the fullness of deity dwells in him. Very clearly a God reference. We see that he is sent by God, uh, by God the Father, and he is to be honored as such in John 5 and John 10. We see in Mark 10, God alone is good and Jesus alone is called good. We see that he forgives sin as God alone can do in Mark 2. We see this in other places as well. This is a really fun one. I actually did this one time with the Jehovah's Witnesses. They're at my door, and I'm like, you guys. Because they'll, they'll haggle over John 1. And it normally starts off with like, well, you have the wrong translation, and they pull out their New World translation. Um, and then I'm like, well, how about this? And I pull out my Greek New Testament. And I recognize not everybody can do this. But I did teach New Testament Greek for about three years, and I'll go right to John 1, and I'll, I'll show them in the text how their translation actually added words, where it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. They put the word A in there, and they say the Word was a God, not in the text, just not there. And so I'll talk to them about that, but then they don't want to talk about that because they're so slavishly tied to their translation. And so what's really fun is to go to this one. I'm like, Jesus forgave sin, you guys. And I'll look at them like, can you forgive sin? I can't forgive sin. Can you, for can you forgive sin? Like, I can say, yeah, you wronged me, and that was bad, and I forgive you, I but I can't forgive the sin that you committed to God. Only God can do that. And so I'll look, this, I did this with this woman at, at my door, and I'm like, you can't forgive sin, can you? I can't either. Only God can forgive sin. And yet Jesus forgives sin and then proves it with his miracles. This is, you guys remember when they lowered the paraplegic down in front of him? And, and what does he do? He doesn't say, get up and walk first. He begins by saying, your sins are forgiven because the reason why Jesus came was to pay our sin debt. And then he proves it with the miracle because he knows that they're murmuring. And so he says, ah, I know you're saying among yourselves, why is he doing this? But just to show that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins. And then he says, rise and walk. And the guy gets up. This is why we don't put the miracles first at our church. Because Jesus came to show that he has the authority over sin and death. And he does it by first dealing with the sin problem and then proving it with miracles. The miracles don't come first. God can do the miracles, but that's not what it's about primarily. Anyway, more on that later. But I'm doing this and I'm talking to them and I see this woman's eyes get so big. Because what we're doing is simply exegeting texts of scripture that she has herself seen and she realizes that everything she believes about Jesus is a lie. And that's the way to get rid of him because the guy that's with her does not want her exposed to this. And he's like, well, we got to go. Clearly you have your opinions and we're gone. And so then as they're walking down the street, I'm like, repent and believe the gospel. Right? My new thing, if they do, they've marked my house now. They're not coming back. But my new thing is I'm like, you know what? I have a responsibility as a light of Christ in my neighborhood. If those false teachers come to my house again, I intend to follow them to my neighbors. Because you know what? Just about every day I pray for my neighbor Bob to repent and believe the gospel. And I will not let some false teaching clown 
go over and deceive him into a false works-based religion that denies the God who created the heavens and the earth. I will not allow it. Don't you either. And this is why I'm preaching this sermon that is just facts so that you are equipped to respond to this. But can I just tell you something that's happening? I don't think the Jehovah's Witnesses are who we need to worry about the most right now. Because most of us are like, oh my gosh, these people again. Right? It's like, I can't forgive sin. I'm going to have to forgive you for ruining my Saturday morning. Right? You know who we do have an issue with? I'm going to just speak it plainly. It's guys like Andy Stanley. Right? It's people who are quasi-evangelical, who have been going around denying key doctrines of the faith, and they keep giving a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. Right? Andy Stanley denies the Old Testament now. And so then you have now Christians who thought they were in evangelical churches who are being taught something that is real fuzzy at best. And so when they say, oh, it's time now to stand up for the reality that Jesus is fully God and fully man, and they're like, you know, Jesus' teachings are really good, and I can get away with not offending people if I get into this whole, like, love your enemies and blah, blah, blah thing. Let me just tell you, it's not Jehovah's Witnesses right now that we're worried about denying the deity of Christ. It's people that grew up in regular old evangelical churches that never learned these basic things and haven't thought through, like, wait a minute, Jesus forgives sin and nobody else can forgive sin. And so when somebody wants to say, that's just crazy. Why do you believe that crazy stuff? Like all that miracle stuff and all that whatever, that just seems odd and silly. And they're like, yeah, I guess that does seem odd. And so I'll hold on to this kind of Jesus is a nice guy thing. And then I get to kind of keep my traditions and whatever without really being kind of intellectually challenged on this. That's who we have to worry about. And so anyway, what I'm trying to put you in a position to is that you either have to acknowledge that Jesus is exactly who he says he is, or you walk away entirely. Because Jesus says, you've either got to be hot or cold. If you are lukewarm, I will vomit you out of my mouth. This is what we're going for today. Anyway, uh, so he forgives sin. He receives worship. Notice, you know, angels can't receive worship. Every time an angel shows up, except for the angel of the Lord, which is probably Jesus, that's a whole other thing. But every time an angel shows up and delivers a message, or even one of the apostles does something miraculous by the power of Christ, and people fall down to worship them, what does the angel or the apostle do? They're like, no, 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 no. Because I'm not God, and you just, it is blasphemy for you to worship me as God. Instead, they say, worship the one true God. But every time someone tries to worship Jesus, he receives it. Once again... He's either the Lord, or he is a liar, or he is a lunatic. I tend to believe he is Lord. Continuing on, we see that he affirms his pre-existence and uses the proper name for God, I am, to refer to himself. In John 8, 58, when they're challenging him, and he responds to this question, he says, before Abraham was, I am. He doesn't say before Abraham was, I was, which would seem really great, you know, grammatically. He says, before Abraham was, I am, which is a reference to the fact that his, by his divinity, he exists outside of space-time. I wrote a whole thesis on this. It's a whole other thing. We don't need to get into it. But beyond that, he's also using the proper name for God. Do you know that the name Yahweh, which means I am that I am, many would not even write or speak because they saw his name to be so holy. Not only is Jesus speaking it, but he is saying, that's who I am. He's not just saying I'm God in the general sense, right? Oh yeah, Elohim and whatever, because there's this guy, Bar Ehrman, that's trying to go around saying like, well, yeah, they called him the word for God, but that's not what they meant. 
He can't get around this passage when Jesus is actually saying, yeah, that Old Testament, Yahweh, that's me. Anyway, that's about the best mic drop moment, by the way, when he's like, I am. (sighs) Anyway, all right. So we see that he is prophesied to be mighty God, Emmanuel, meaning God with us. In Isaiah 9, 6, written hundreds of years before Jesus comes along, the prophecy of the Messiah is that he would be the Prince of Peace, the mighty God. When you sing Handel's Messiah, you're not singing something that was written about Jesus after the fact. His prophecy is that he would be mighty God. Sing it, belt it out, God receives glory for it. Praise the Lord. Uh, We see in Colossians 1, as well as in John 1, he created the universe. He had glory before the world began. That's John 17. Uh, He calls himself God, which was seen as blasphemy by the unbelieving Jews in John 10. How interesting. You know, if if somebody misunderstands something I say, and they're going to kill me over it, I'm going to want to clear that up really quick. Right? If I accidentally say something and somebody's like, wait, Dan, by the way, that's profit. Like, we will prosecute you to death for that. I'm going to be like, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) Not what I meant. Do you know that when they accuse Jesus of blasphemy, he doesn't clarify. He's like, no, I'm claiming to be God, you guys. Like, he does not try to clarify and say that that's not what he means. He affirms it. Um, we see that he's immutable in Hebrews 13, which is something that only God is. Uh, we're told to pray to Jesus for salvation in Romans 10:9, And we see that he is God overall. You guys, I mean, we can't get over the overwhelming. I mean, I just took me a long time to go through, and that's not even all of the evidence that we can bring for the fact that Jesus claims to be God. Can I just say a little side note? If Jesus had said all of these things and then been crucified and we never heard from him again, we could say, oh, he was lying about all that. Have you noticed the fact that the resurrection of Jesus confirms all of this? Uh, In our apologetics class, we go into great detail about this. Yes, it's pretty amazing that someone would raise from the dead. But can I just point you to the fact that the apostles all were terrified for their lives every one of them. We see them hiding and in fear. And then they see this Jesus. And so there are some that would say, oh, maybe, you know, he just kind of resuscitated in the tomb and he just kind of stumbled in. I'm like, I'm going to tell you, if if he just stumbled in, I'm not going to be like, yay, Jesus conquered death. I'm going to be like, oh man, I do not want to be beaten and nearly murdered like he was. But instead, these guys are like, he's alive, you guys. Only God can do that, and so we have nothing to fear. And they go from terror to willingly going to their death for the cause of Christ. You guys. And then we have independent lines of testimony, right? We have independent lines of testimony. Liars don't make martyrs. These guys were willing to die for the fact that they, they're not just saying, well, I heard that John saw, that Peter saw, and we're, no, 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 we're like, I saw him with my own eyes. We beheld his glory. This is why... The witnesses of the apostles are so important. Not just the apostles, but on and on. Anyway, continuing on. So a couple of side notes um, we're going to just address. Uh, This guy Arius comes around in like the 300s AD. And Arius comes around saying like, hey, yeah, yeah, maybe Jesus is sort of like God, but not fully God. And so he starts kind of going about this teaching. And it's causing division because we can actually trace back all the way to about AD 30 uh, that Clearly, everybody believed Jesus was God, who was a Christian. Um, some wonderful documentation, not to mention just scripture, but it's, it's, everybody believed this. Arius comes along and he's like, yeah, maybe he's like God, but not fully God. And so Constantine, the emperor, had just become a Christian. You guys hear about this? And Constantine says, we got to work this out. Now, there is this accusation that this council that was being called 
uh, this, it's, we call it the Council of Nicaea, there's an accusation that it was all this big political thing and that the only reason you believe in God is because Constantine wanted you to. Uh, completely false, and here's why. Constantine was sympathetic to this Arius guy who was denying the deity of Christ. Constantine calls this meeting, and he's like, I don't care what you guys decide on, although we know he liked Arius a whole lot, and he just says, I just need unity in, in my empire. So you guys get together. He calls all these bishops, all these theologians together. You guys get together and, and figure this thing out. Well, you have this guy, Athanasius, who has been very clearly pointing out this Arius guy is a false teacher. And he's pointing out, like, guys, scripture is so clear on this. This is not even a question. And most of them are like, yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Like, this doesn't make, make sense. And so Constantine shows up, calls the meeting, and then we have all these guys debate, and guess what? We decide from scripture that Jesus really is God against what Constantine really wanted everybody to decide on. And yet Constantine is like, okay, yeah, that's what you guys decide. I don't have enough of a dog in the fight, and Arius gets banished. Um, so any time somebody's like, ah, you only believe this because of Nicaea. Well, first of all, we believe it from Scripture. And I know people who have never heard of Nicaea that still believe this, right, because they've read Scripture. But side note, if it had been a political thing, we would have gone with Arius. Anyway, that's another. So the big land, the place we land on is you'll hear these two phrases or words, homoousion or homoousion. Homoousion is what Arius and now the Jehovah's Witnesses taught. And it's this idea that he was like God, but not the same essence. Homoousios, uh, homoousios is what is the Greek word that means same essence, and that's what we get from the Council of Nicaea. I will simply read the Council of Nicaea's creed. It says, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. This is 325 AD, by the way. Of all that is seen and unseen, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true light from true, or true God from true God, begotten, not made. We sang about that this morning. It says, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and he became truly human. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. These things should all sound very familiar as passages we just cited. Should it feel a little bit good that we didn't just say, hey, here's what Nicaea says, and now let's say that. We can go through scripture and say like, yeah, and these same scriptures that over a thousand years ago, these brothers in Christ sat down and they wrestled over to say, we want to make sure we get this doctrine right. He did the same thing as we did. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver. Um, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Another little side note. Side note. And so many side notes. Another little side note. A few, uh, few years later, the Council of Chalcedon met to kind of address like this whole issue of like, what does it mean that he's fully God and fully man? We agree, but what does that mean? And essentially, they land on this idea. We call it the hypostatic union. Uh, it's the idea of the two natures of Christ are united in one person. 
Philippians 2 addresses it, John 1. You don't need to go into great detail. I'm just citing this for you. But this hypostatic union means that there are two natures in one person. He's not two personalities. Um, He doesn't have some dual split personality. He's one person, but a divine nature and a human nature. Those two natures are unmixed, right? there's, There's not like this mixing together to get some third thing. His deity remains whole, and this is a forever union. That Jesus right now, seated next to the Father, is fully God and fully man. That he entered into this incarnation eternally for our good. Praise God. This is why when we see in Philippians 2, we call this the kenosis passage. It says, Philippians 2.5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality of God, um, equality with God a thing to be grasped, like to be clinged to, but emptied himself. The question is like, oh, did he cease to be God? No, as we're seeing, he emptied himself into human flesh, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The whole point of all of this is for God to receive glory. Little side note, Council of Chalcedon, I've provided in the notes, gives us a real clear language on this. We're not going to go into great detail. We also saw that Jesus has revealed his glory to his apostles. At the Mount of Transfiguration, he shows that he's God as his divinity is revealed. It is a powerful and wonderful thing, and it is why we can believe in Christ. And so this is why I want to take us very briefly to 2 John. We're almost done here. John again, so here he's written in 1 John, uh, in 1 John, yes, he writes in 1 John, but in John the Gospel, John's Gospel, he writes about the deity of Christ. He writes about Christ's death and resurrection and how he's atoned for our sin. And then he recognizes that there's a lot of false teachers going around teaching some error doctrine related to Christ. And so in 2 John, he writes to this, what's called the elect lady. Now, we're not 100% sure if this is a woman or if this is a figure of speech to refer to the church as the elect lady. I tend to believe he's referring to the church, and this is just a euphemism for the church. In any case, note what he writes here in 2 John 4 through 10. He says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children, that would probably be members of the church, walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. Now, this is key. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. For, notice there's a logical connection here, as if the faithful proclamation of Christ that he's about to talk about is related to how I love my neighbor. And he says in verse 7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Now the guess, I shouldn't say the guess, it is likely that this was some form of Gnosticism where people were going around saying like, yeah, he was God, but he wasn't flesh. And he's saying, people are going around saying this, that's bad. He says, such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. He does not pull any punches. If somebody's going around saying that Jesus is not truly God and truly man, this is an Antichrist. I mean, it, it doesn't get 
I mean, you, you can't get a stronger smack in the face than that. And he continues, he says, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Notice he's expanded it. Now he's, he's addressing this issue of what's probably Gnosticism. And now he's saying, but anybody who's denying the doctrine of Christ does not have God. You cannot deny the deity of hum and humanity of Christ. You cannot deny the death and resurrection of Christ as atoning work for us and remain a Christian. This means that those 43% of evangelicals who are denying the deity of Christ are no Christians at all, let alone evangelicals. He says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, oh, I'm sorry, let's, everyone uh, who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. It's almost like when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. He wasn't kidding. Verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Have we ever had a time when we were told not to be hospitable? And this is the one time. Now, I think we should be clear. Generally, the language of a greeting here in the first century was not just like, hey, how you doing? Right? It seemed to be a different category where a greeting was that you would stop and you would engage. And you would have a, like, it wasn't just a greeting like, hey, it was like the full, like, what we would call small talk and entering into a conversation. It might be a few hours. Almost like the Jehovah's Witnesses who love to distract you and waste your time on a Saturday morning. I'm not kidding. Spe this is specifically the doctrine that he is saying, do not greet them. Now, it doesn't mean don't say hi. It doesn't mean be unkind. But it does mean don't let them waste your time. Right? He goes on to say, uh, don't give him any, don't let him in your house. Now, I'm, I tend to be really cautious. This probably means don't let them stay in your house. Like, don't give them a base of operations to go teach their false teaching because they're staying in your guest room. Right? I think if you've had a Jehovah's Witness in your house to continue the conversation and you offered them some lemonade, I'm, I, ple I, I doubt that you're in great violation, but maybe, just maybe, you don't even want to do that because that seems a whole lot like greeting them and wasting your time. Um, in any case, he ends, he says, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked deeds. Oh, please understand, because this could be misunderstood and misinterpreted, and it could be real cultic. I'm not saying don't go and not talk to anybody who doesn't believe the gospel, which is the opposite. I mean, the whole point is we're supposed to be preaching the gospel and communicating. But it does indicate that there are those who are false teachers who are not to get your time and resources. So I just encourage you, this is about as harsh as it gets because that's how serious this false teaching is. Because brothers and sisters, the glory of God is at stake. I will very briefly read the last part of this Philippians 2 passage. Verse 9, it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father God, may you receive that glory. May we teach this faithfully. May we equip our kids to believe the truth. May we teach others. May we be gracious and kind as we proclaim the gospel of who you are. In Christ's name, amen. A couple of bits of recommended reading I will just very briefly mention um, as we get ready for whoever's going to do... Uh
the gospel today. One is on the incarnation by Athanasius. This was the guy who was at the Council of Nicaea responding to Arius. This book is not a hard, it sounds like, okay, so written over a thousand years ago, it's a pretty easy read. You would actually enjoy it. You'd get it translated into English. Please don't go and try to read the original version, right? But this is actually a great book. It is encouraging. You could read it right now, especially this particular version, this particular translation. Great book. Um, last time we mentioned orthodoxy and heresy. That's even related. The London Baptist Confession. I will also, if you want to go like hardcore on your study, uh, The Word Became Flesh by Millard Erickson goes into great detail on this. Helpful resources, hopefully good for you. Um, I'm going to pray, and then who is on for the gospel? Awesome. Father God, would you bless Kevin as he communicates the gospel to us and as we take communion today together in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, Dan. I feel like, um, I should just say, everything he just said,